Welcome to Memorial Day, and we're so glad to have you. Thanks for taking your time and being here with us. I have asked Lydia to be on the stage with me today because we... I don't know why, but Gateway, this is Lydia. Lydia, this is Gateway. And Lydia is going to read the scripture for us today. I told Lydia she was going to be up here because she increases the awesomeness and the cuteness factor. So Lydia, good morning. You're reading for us today 1 Peter chapter 3. Today we're talking about suffering. So happy Memorial Day. You have been taking, I think, Greek classes lately. So Lydia, what is the Greek word for suffer? Pascho. That's right. Yeah, what she said. And that word means essentially the same thing in Greek that it means in English. It doesn't refer to any particular event or kind of suffering, but it's our experience. It's the human experience of suffering. So we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, through chapter 4, verse 1. And 1 Peter is one of those little books at the back of the New Testament. So I'd love for you to turn in your Bible to 1 Peter or dial in your phone to 1 Peter. We're going to look today at six encouraging things that Peter tells us to arm us for suffering. So, uh, Lydia, I'm going to ask you to read, and if you guys would, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's Word. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Christ suffered for our sins once and for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death but he was raised to life in the spirit. So he went and preached to the spirits in the prison, those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And now that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God, and all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had, and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. Father, thank you for your truth. We believe it's your truth. We believe it's your word. And I ask that you would apply the words of the Apostle Peter to our lives and to our hearts today. God, I want to pray especially that you would call us today in the midst of whatever circumstances that we're going through to man up, Lord, that we would not allow ourselves to be sucked in by self-pity or victimhood or fear, but instead we would grab hold of every opportunity that life presents us. We would grow We would seize the victory that you're offering us because we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength, even suffer. Lord, we give you permission this morning to do heart surgery. We give you permission to crack open our chests and massage your truth into our hearts. We receive you today. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Lydia, thank you very much. Okay, so in this section of Peter's letter, he prepares us to be able to deal with suffering. He fortifies us with six encouragements that will help us navigate suffering without resorting to resentment or confusion or fear or victimhood. 
This teaching applies to us through all kinds of suffering, but especially to suffering that comes to us because of our faith. This also happens to be one of the weirdest sections in the entire New Testament. So I'm going to take a few minutes this morning and walk you through that weird section, give you various interpretations of it. If you get lost, don't worry, I'm lost too. I'm going to give you what I think is the best interpretation of this, but this is one of those passages where I'm not sure, but I believe God has truth for us today. So six ways we are strengthened for suffering. Number one, when we suffer, we are not outside of God's will. It's not an accident. God is not surprised when we suffer. When things are going against us, when things pile up so that we don't think we can take another thing, God is not alarmed and he's not surprised. We are not outside of his sovereign care. The Apostle Peter says, it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This principle relates to a well-known ethical teaching by Socrates. Socrates said this, to act unjustly is worse insofar as it's more disgraceful than to be treated unjustly. To act unjustly is worse than to be treated unjustly. That's profound, but I want you to notice what Peter adds to Socrates' principle. Peter adds, if it's God's will. In other words, whatever God wills, even if it's suffering, and sometimes it is, then it's better. Whatever God wills is better. Sometimes when we suffer, we're tempted to feel distant from God. We may even feel like he's punishing us. And it's true that we sometimes are suffering from the consequences of our own action. But even in those circumstances, we do well to remember that we are not outside of God's sovereign care when we suffer. Diane loves a quote from Johnny Tata Erickson. She's repeated it at significant points in our life and marriage for a number of years. Johnny Tata Erickson, as some of you know, is a woman in her probably late 50s at this point, maybe early 60s. She's quadriplegic. She cannot move her arms or legs due to a diving accident when she was in high school. She dove into a lake and uh, hit her head on a rock. Johnny Todd Erickson says that in all events, heaven and hell are involved, but for different reasons. So you and I want to make sure that we're participating with one of those and not with the other. And we do that in part by remembering that when we suffer, we are not ever outside of God's sovereign care. Secondly, Peter offers a test case, doesn't he? Jesus, look. Even Jesus suffered, Peter is saying to us. Chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Now, a little note about Greek. Most of us, except for Lydia, won't get this, but word order in Greek, and the Bible was originally written in Greek, the New Testament. Word order in a sentence is often insignificant in a Greek sentence. The meaning and purpose of words in a sentence are taken from the form of the word and not from its place in the sentence. So let's say, for instance, we were speaking Greek and the object of the sentence, I threw the ball, in English is obviously the ball. And we know that because it's put after the action. Well, in Greek, they would add an ending to that word. They would say, I threw the ball on. And it wouldn't matter where you put it in the sentence. Ball on, I threw. I, ball on, threw. In all cases, it's still the object of the action because of the form of the verb. Usually, the word order is insignificant. 
But sometimes Greek authors will add subtle emphasis or color to a sentence through the word order. I believe Peter may have done so in this sentence. If we take Peter's Greek sentence word for word, it reads like this. For even Christ, once for all, for all sins, suffered. Part of what that means is that suffering is inevitable. If Christ suffered, then certainly we will. Look, the world is a beautiful place, but it's also broken, and it produces suffering. Jesus told us plainly that in this world we would have trouble. John 16, 33. I've told you these things so that you'd have peace. Because in this world, you'll have trouble. Even Christ suffered. How could we think we would escape it? In fact, because we're associated with him, it's even more likely that we'll suffer. Jesus repeatedly reminds us of this. For example, John 15, 21 and 22. Now, remember what I told you, and he did tell them this exact thing earlier in his ministry. A servant is not greater than his master. He goes on in the other context to say, hey, a a student's not greater than his teacher. He adds here, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. In this world, you'll have trouble. Part of what this means for us is that suffering is not, it's not ignoble. It's not necessarily an indication of God's displeasure. If Christ suffered, then suffering is certainly not necessarily an indication of sin or a mistake on our part. It may be, but in fact, suffering, even in those circumstances, suffering always serves God's purposes as all things do. So we will be strengthened for suffering if we remember that our suffering is, first of all, not outside of God's sovereign care, and secondly, if we remember, even Christ suffered. Okay, it's 1025, so I'm going to add a little aside here. I've got a note here that I was was or was not going to add this note depending on the time, but I'm going to add this note. At the risk of being boring, as we said, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, but there's no library anywhere in the world that you can go to and take out a big, giant copy of the original autograph of Peter's writing, 1 Peter or 2 Peter, and then go to that same library and pull out Matthew's biography of Jesus in Matthew's hand. We don't have it. What we have are copies of copies of copies of copies. And the oldest ones and the earliest ones of them are sometimes just little fragments. In fact, the oldest one we have is from like 120 AD, and it's got a sentence and a half on it. It's just a little piece of paper. The interesting thing about this is if you've ever listened to one of those Discovery Channel specials on the Bible, they'll say something to you in a British accent so you know it must be true. They'll say something to you like, and all of the various manuscripts that have been dug up, there are almost 400,000 textual variants. Sometimes naive follower of Christ goes, what? And it tends to diminish our confidence in the book. There was a a book that was on the New York Times bestseller list for almost a year, written by Bart Ehrman, who was a professor of religion at the University of North Carolina. He's had more than one bestseller. And his first bestseller was called Misquoting Jesus. That's not really about misquoting Jesus. It's it's about this uh, issue. He takes issue with the reliability of the text, in part because nobody believes all those miracles, and secondly, because we don't even have what they originally wrote. We don't even know what they wrote. 
We've got copies of copies of copies. And in those copies, there are 400,000 different textual variants. And the young, naive, 19-year-old, God-honoring college student reads this at the University of North Carolina and goes, what? You mean we can't even believe this? And you need to know. You need to know that the overwhelming majority of those textual variants, the overwhelming majority are one copy has left out the word the. Another one has made a plural into a singular. There is not a single, not one in all of those textual variants. And by the way, conservative estimates would say closer to 150,000 differences. But there is not one single textual variant, not even one single text, not even one copy of a copy of a copy that would rattle your faith if you read the difference. There is no copy anywhere that they've dug up that said, Jesus is dead. What? Nowhere. Now, there's a Hall of Fame list of probably some of the most significant textual variants. Maybe I would say in the top 25, this verse. So some of you may be looking at a New Testament. If you're looking at an older NIV, like the NIV, which we usually use here, I don't, Lydia, what did you read? Did you read the ESV? New Living Translation. It's a very good translation. But if you were looking at the NIV or if you're looking at it here, the NIV actually has like three or four different variations. And a couple of the variations of the NIV and the New American Standard versions will say, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's not just a mistranslation of Lydia's word. That's a textual variant. There are significant texts that say Christ died for sins once for all. Now, again, there's absolutely no theological difference. We know what Peter meant. And that's in the top 25. It might even be in the top 10 of the textual variants. But that's why you see Christ died in some of those texts. I tell you that to let you all know, man, we can believe this book. There are far more textual variants for every ancient document. You know, Iliad and the Odyssey, tons more textual variants for that than there are for the scriptures because these people were really careful about what they were doing. And again, the overwhelming majority of those textual variants is the word the, or they've accidentally left out even an important word in a sentence, and it's clearly that some copyist was about to go to sleep. All right, enough of that. The third encouragement that Peter gives us towards suffering is, through his suffering, Jesus has brought us safely to God. A, it points to part of the important purpose that suffering can serve even in our lives, but B, it also points to an incredible theological truth. And really, honestly, even though this isn't the heart of our message today uh, from Peter, if you miss everything else today, don't miss this. So let's make note of some important features about this part of what Peter's saying. Number one, I want you to note that Jesus' suffering was unjust. For Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus was righteous. I want you to also notice, secondly, that Jesus suffered as a substitute for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. And that unrighteous section, that includes us, even the best of you. Third, and this is critical, this is the very core of what the first followers believed that was the heart of our belief. This is the core of what they called the gospel. 
So here's the gospel in a nutshell in our verse here. If you've heard that phrase before, the gospel, this is it in a nutshell. Here it is. It's a universal principle that the punishment for sin, for departing from God's best for us, the punishment for that is death. So, for instance, if you as a parent decide that you will establish consequences when your children disobey, you aren't being cruel. You're acting in concert with the universe. There are consequences when we disobey. And this sin thing, by the way, and I'm continuing with the explanation of the gospel, this sin thing, this is the biggest problem we have. That's our greatest enemy. My children's greatest enemy, parents and young people, and those of you who are early in your marriage, you're thinking about having kids, Your children's greatest enemy is not the culture that surrounds us. Our children's greatest enemy isn't Satan. My children's greatest enemy is their own sin. That's what separates them and me from God. But Peter reminds us that instead of having us having to die our own death as a consequence for our defiance, Jesus died our death for us if we would but accept it. And by the way... I prayed this week that everyone here would have or will today accept that. And if you haven't, it's as simple as saying yes. When your heart begins to soften to this truth, you know, when the light begins to dawn in the darkness of your self-driven heart, then all you need to do and all I need to do is say, yes, God, I believe, I'm down with that. Finally, I want you to notice that Jesus' suffering on our behalf means that we can be brought safely to God. Interestingly, the word used here, to bring to God, is is a word that's used in usually in some very specific context. It, It was used when someone brought a visitor to the court to visit the king, and it was used when someone brought a sacrifice to God. So in other words, Jesus is bringing our life, our time, our talent, our treasure before God as a pleasing sacrifice to him. And ultimately, Jesus is bringing us into the holy court for us to take up residence there. Through his suffering, Jesus has brought us safely to God. Knowing this strengthens us in our suffering because we know in our present and in our future, our lives are in God's hands. We're being brought safely to God. And sometimes not in spite of our suffering, but sometimes because of it. Fourth, Peter reminds us to... Remember the days of Noah. All right, this is where it gets weird. Now, if you've read this before, you no doubt have thought, what? So let's work through that. I think what Peter is saying here, and I apologize to Jesus if I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, you know, I will stand corrected before him one day, and you all will be able to say, I told you so. But I think what he's saying here essentially is Noah suffered, but eventually he ended up being vindicated and saved as opposed to the people around him who were condemned and they are in effect in prison. So when we're suffering, we should remember this. We should remember Noah, that he was thought bad of and treated ill, but he was ultimately saved and the people who were thinking bad of him and treating him ill were condemned and are in prison. So let me read it, and then I'll give you the main interpretations of this. For those of you who are bored by this kind of thing, you can step aside for a second, and I'll call you back to attention in a minute. I'll start with part of verse 18, and then we'll go through part of verse 20. It reads like this. Jesus was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison 
who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Strange, I know. So it seems that Christ in his resurrected state went somewhere to preach something to some spirits who were in some kind of prison, and it's not absolutely clear what any of those psalms represent. (laughs) In the interest of time, and because of my own uncertainty, frankly, I'm going to give you a brief high-level summary of the four main interpretations of this, and then I'm going to end with the one that I believe is the right one, even though this one has been, as they all have, have been discredited by many. So at the beginning, he says, he was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. So the first interpretation of this is that the spirits here are Old Testament saints who are in a holding pattern. They're kind of in a state of rest, waiting for Jesus to come give them the full story of God's redemption plan. And in fact, many believe that this is Part of the justification for that phrase, some of you will remember the phrase in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. There are a lot of contexts that don't use that phrase when they say the Apostles' Creed. We don't, because I'm not actually sure that's biblical. I don't agree with this interpretation of of this section, although, again, it may be, and I say that very humbly. But there are a couple of things that make this interpretation unlikely. Are you following me? Are you so hot you're about asleep? If you take this interpretation, then you have to take prison in a neutral sense. Remember, they're in prison, and you'd have to take that not in a negative sense, and that word is always prison. It's always negative. Secondly, you have to assume that in verse 20, when he says, they disobeyed, he's not here talking about, he's switched subjects all of a sudden. He's not talking about those Old Testament saints who are waiting on Jesus to hear the gospel so they can fully accept because certainly he wouldn't describe them as the people who disobeyed. I mean, they, of course, there was disobedience in their life, but that wasn't the ultimate banner over their lives. So Peter would be talking about someone else in that verse, and that just doesn't seem likely. There's a second interpretation. The spirits here are the people who died in the great flood. He seems to be honing in on that. And those people are kept in some kind of imprisoning middle ground like Hades, They hear the gospel preached through Jesus after his death and before his resurrection. This may have even precipitated in their condemnation. They reject him then like they did before. This is unlikely for many reasons, but I'll give you a couple. One, there's no explanation of this middle ground prison here or anywhere. It's kind of an idea made up to make this uh, teaching work somehow. Secondly, It would be weird to single out the sinners during the period of the flood. Why just talk about those? Well, how about the centuries of folks who lived before Christ? Why have you singled out the flood? That seems unlikely to me. Third interpretation, the spirits here are fallen angels, referred to perhaps in Genesis 6-1. Now, this sounds weird, but this may be the most popular interpretation, honestly. And those fallen angels are being kept bound somewhere in some kind of prison until after Jesus' death. And then Jesus goes to make a proclamation of judgment against them. So when he's preaching, he's preaching judgment. He's not necessarily preaching the gospel. There are many permutations and variations of this idea. And honestly, there are a lot of things about it. Even though it's weird, there are a lot of things about it that recommend it. The only negatives are, number one, the word used for proclaim here or preach 
in the NIV. It literally means to proclaim or announce in a loud voice, but it's almost always, I, in fact, I couldn't find an incident in the New Testament. There may be one, but it's almost always used when announcing God's good news with the hope of response. And that doesn't have to be the case, but it just is almost always the case in the New Testament and with Peter. And if this is what Peter intended, if this is what he meant by this, I would think he would give a much more elaborate explanation I mean, than just this one little verse. And, and I think we'd find this idea somewhere else in the New Testament, it seems to me. So there's a fourth interpretation, and it's the one that I favor. The spirits here, stay with me, are the people of Noah's day who rebelled against God and rejected him. So far, pretty easy. Then you have to think of Jesus through the Spirit, as it says that, Jesus through the Spirit, and that's literally through the ministry of Noah. So Jesus, speaking through Noah, preached to these people. They disobeyed and judged. And here's the part that receives the most criticism. That reference to in prison, that's where they now are not where they were then. The interpretation is not that Jesus went to them in prison. It's that they're now in prison. They were preached to and then put in prison. So there's no time signature on that idea of being in prison. So you could read almost like now in prison. So it would read sort of like this. For Christ died for sins once for all the righteous, for the unrighteous bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit through whom he also went and preached to the spirits parentheses, through Noah. Another parentheses, now those spirits are in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. All right, there are some stretches there. However, the preaching didn't happen, as I said, in prison. The preaching happened through the ministry of Noah while they were alive. What will make this a little less bizarre to you is to recognize that we already have a reference to the Spirit of Christ preaching through the Old Testament prophets in chapter 1, verse 11. Go read it later. Peter says that the Spirit of Christ was preaching through the prophets about this time, about his time. And I would say another thing that commends this is it really makes some sense out of the strangeness of this passage. This also provides powerful incentive for us to bear up under suffering. First of all, because we don't want to be like the disobedient spirits of Noah's day who ended up separated from God. And secondly, and we're reminded by Noah here that it's not necessarily a bad thing to be in the disadvantaged minority. You know, in Noah's day, God ended up destroying the world and the minority were the only ones saved. In fact, eight in all, Peter adds emphasis. So, remember Noah. That part we can all agree on. You may not agree on my interpretation, but remember Noah. And then fifth, a fifth incentive for making our way, a fifth fortification for making our way through suffering is to remember your baptism. And he says it like this, again in a slightly weird way. And this water, the water of the flood, symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ or through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so we get a clear picture of what baptism really is here. It's not just a good swim. It's not just the act of getting wet and washing off some dirt. That's not what affects our lives whatsoever. Baptism, when it's done properly, is a pledge toward God. 
It's an outward symbol of an inward, faith-filled, conscience-driven decision to give our lives in obedience to being students of Jesus Christ and submitting to his governance. I'm going to repeat that. Baptism, when it's done properly, is a pledge toward God. It's an outward symbol of an inward, faith-filled, conscience-driven decision to give our lives in obedience to being students of Jesus Christ and submitting to his governance. So, you know, occasionally when we do a baptism here at Gateway, and always when we do a baby dedication here at Gateway, and you know this if you've been here for a while, I try to tip my hat and even apologize to the saints who have gone before us, who for generations practiced a kind of infant baptism, setting aside toward the day when that faith would be confirmed. And that practice was very early in the history of the church, and it was modeled on the Old Testament. But I believe in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, in the New Arrangement, we don't become followers of Christ by being born into it like they were in the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, we become followers of Christ. We come into a relationship with God by deciding to do so, by our own conscience, faith-filled decision. And baptism is the confirmation of that. It's the seal of that. And this action, this faith-filled, conscience-driven decision secures our relationship with God because of what we said earlier, because Jesus Christ took our penalty. He died our death. And we're pledging. We're leaning into that. So anything that would prevent us from having a relationship with God has been removed because of that pledge symbolized in our baptism. I say again, I pray that all of us have made such a faith-filled, conscience-driven decision. One more note here. It's also fascinating that Peter uses the great flood as his image of baptism. That The great flood reminds him of baptism. And I think what he's saying by that is just like the ark, follow this, just like the ark carried eight saints through the water, in a sense carrying them from death to life. So in baptism, we pass through the water and move from death to life. We're like people who are uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character in The Revenant. No spoiler alert here. Even if you haven't seen the movie, you've seen the commercial. It's an epic line when Leonardo DiCaprio says, I'm not afraid of dying. I've done it already. We're people who are not afraid of suffering. We're not even afraid of dying. We've done it already. We're strengthened by that. We're strengthened when we remember that. Finally, quickly, I think Peter encourages us to remember where Jesus ended up. Even though he suffered death on a cross, even though he suffered death on a cross, now he sits in heaven at God's right hand with everything in submission to him. So the next time you and I are facing the end of what we believe is the end of our rope, let's remember Jesus, who at the end of his rope, he handled it well, and in effect, the father cut the rope off, and Jesus still ended up at God's right hand with all powers and authorities in submission to him. Okay, let's wrap up. I know you're hot, but let's bring this home. I was tempted this week. I've been thinking about this sermon for a couple of weeks and thinking about the idea of suffering. I was tempted this week to be reminded, frankly, about how 
potentially soft we are spiritually. There are a couple of things that kind of grabbed my attention this week. I had a brief conversation one afternoon this week with Coach Jason Dawson. Thanks, Coach. And I was reminded by Coach Dawson. So spend about half an hour with Coach Dawson, and you'll be reminded too. I was reminded how soft I am. I was also reminded, Terry Eagle sent me a link to an online magazine, check this out, called Smart Assets, I think, pun intended. And they do a happiness survey every year in the United States. And they survey every county in America to see which counties in America are the happiest. Some of you saw this. The second happiest county in America, Fairfax County. The first happiest county in America, the number one happiest county in America, Loudoun County. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me, some of you have heard me say this many times before, but before Diane and I moved to Northern Virginia, we pastored a church in the inner city in Boston. And these were folks who were desperate, many of them. This was the working poor and below. And these were folks that didn't have a lot of resources. So the need in their lives was this close to their face every day, all day long. And it was stark for Diane and I when we first moved to Northern Virginia. You know, now 20 years later, we are very used to it. But when we first moved here, it was really stark. And I've told you all before, when we started Gateway, I started it by going around neighborhoods, knocking on doors, and I surveyed you guys. And you were awesome. You were friendly and you were welcoming and you answered my questions and I had six or seven questions for you. Hey, how are you? And I flashed my toothy grin. Here to start a new church and just love to know who's in the area and not recruiting. We didn't even have a name for a church. There were five of us, Diane and I and the three boys. But, you know, how, what brought you to Northern Virginia and, and what do you think the biggest problem in the area is? And it's usually at the time there's nobody who lived out here and we didn't have any stores. Remember that? Those of you who have been here that long? There's more grocery stores or more shopping or traffic or whatever. Once in a while somebody would say, a new church, and I would say, brown noser. Uh, anyway, so I was surveying folks and I got the overwhelming impression that it was very, very different from the ministry that we had just left. What I realized is we like our lives. We just want them a little better. And we think of that in our religion, too. You know, many of us, we want religion. The kids need religion. We ought to go to church once in a while, and I want you to know that's a bargain that Jesus does not make. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. So we're not afraid of death. We've done it already. I worried as I thought about this that we are too soft. I was also reminded of years ago, I read this article by John Wesley, the great, some of you know that name, great revivalist in England in the 1700s. And really, he changed the landscape of the country of England, certainly the religious atmosphere of England. During the time that I was in seminaries in my 20s, so this was again in the 1860s, that there was an article written by a secular historian from Harvard about the difference between England and France during that period of history. Because you remember France, those of you who know that history, France had a very bloody revolution. They went through the streets of France and cut the heads off the aristocrats. And he made the striking observation that the working conditions 
and the conditions for the poor were exactly the same at the beginning of the 1700s in England as they were in France. The difference he posited between what happened in France is what happened in England, the difference was the Wesley revivals. Because in England, the revivals of John Wesley swept through, and when they did, miners and the working poor began to stop spending all their money in bars, and they started saving. And within one generation, a middle class was created in England. And then he offers, for for reasons that are different than the reasons I take it, he offered a great quote from John Wesley. At the end of his life, Wesley said, something like it's a shame, but he used a more epic old English word. It's a shame that Christian revival, revival was their word for this great move of God. Christian revival carries within itself the seeds of its own undoing. And what he meant was this. People become Christians. He said at another point, and I wrote this down. I want to read you this quote. When a, when a person becomes a Christian, they become industrious, trustworthy, and prosperous. Now, if a person, when he gets all he can and saves all he can, does not give all he can, I have more hope for Judas Iscariot than for that person. So what he means is, Our lives get transformed by God and we start to see things new and not all at once, but little by little our lives really do turn around completely. Ask Eric Saunders who got a a Rhino Award today. Our lives radically change. And the trajectory and the court, the, the, the way we chart our lives and then God comes alongside us and ultimately our lives are safer and more comfortable and then we forget God. And we get soft spiritually. And I'm afraid that's happened to us. I'm afraid, honestly. That's not just a preacher point. I'm afraid we're soft. I'm afraid we're not all out for God. I'm afraid we do what's comfortable. Here's Peter's message, right? In a nutshell don't be afraid, don't be confused. Don't shrink into complaining or self-pity. You got this. God is with you. No matter what you're going through, God isn't surprised. Your life is in his hands. Remember, even Christ suffered, and he suffered victoriously. Not only so, but because of his suffering, you've been brought safely into an eternal relationship with God. It's a hard thing, I know. It's a bad thing to feel alone or to feel pressed to the point of breaking because of all that you've got to go through right now. But you've got this. Remember, there was a time when God nearly destroyed all of human beings, and the only ones he saved were the persecuted minority. Remember that. And remember your own profession. Remember your own declaration, your own baptism. Remember what you believe. Remember what he's done. And remember where Jesus is, the captain of your faith. Don't shrink. Don't play the victim. Play the man. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Let's pray. Father, I recognize that I'm soft. And I say that immediately. I also know I don't want my muscles toughened. I want to be comfortable. I want to be soft. I want to sit on my couch and watch television. Father, I pray that you'd forgive us. 
So if at some future date we want to take it back, I want you to remember that this morning we said we're all in. And whatever, if it's your will, we know it's better. So we receive it. Have your way with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.